Well, it's an honor to be here, and I kind of feel like um, last night as the panel was up and Phil got a chance to kind of answer the last question, I kind of feel like he did after all these incredible uh, answers got, uh, got given at the end when he was asked the same question. Um, he said, what my friends just said, you know, and so that was kind of his answer and response. That's kind of how I feel. What my friends just said all day has been absolutely amazing. Uh, I've been blown away by the, by the quality and the content uh, of what we've got a chance to experience. My, my hope is, uh, is that you're edified by what we engage in tonight. Now, in his famous speech given on August 18, 1963, and delivered under the shadow of one of the most symbolic American monuments, the Lincoln Memorial, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. Now, in this speech, Dr. King would explain the great, in great detail the grievances of Negro life as he and so many others had experienced it during the days of Jim Crow and segregation. It would be this platform that Dr. King would use to call America to the height of, and beauty of the Judeo-Christian ideals that permeate the nation's founding documents. Dr. King said this, and I quote, in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise to all men, yes, black men and white men, would be guaranteed inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. Dr. King would go on to say, quote, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so, We've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and security of justice, end quote. Dr. King would then appeal to the equality of all humanity in the most famous portion of this speech when he said this, and I quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will, be, where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, end quote. Now, while many theologians, myself included, struggle with aspects of Dr. King's theology, there one, one thing that we can acknowledge is at the core of this movement, there can be identified three major components. Let me give them to you. Number one, an appeal to the Judeo-Christian founding of the United States as identified in its founding documents, the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence. At the time of his speech, Dr. King, what Dr. King delivered was an appeal to the equality of opportunity rather than the equity of outcome. This would, this would be identified in the language of freedom, liberty, and justice for all. Whatever King may have missed about the Trinitarian nature of God, he delivered an appeal to the imago Dei of all humanity. This could be heard in the constant language of equality for people of every ethnicity, and background, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics. Now, long after Dr. King's assassination on April 4th, 1968, historians would agree that this speech delivered to more than 250,000 people in the shadows of the Lincoln Memorial was the high point of the civil rights movement. 
King's constant reminder was the cause of nonviolence and nonviolent protest. This hallmark served as the strength of the movement. Dr. King would say it this way, quote, we must never forget the conduct of our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Continuing to quote from King, quote, the nonviolent resistor not only avoids external violence, but he avoids internal violence of spirit. He not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he refuses to hate him. Hear that clearly. And he always stands with the understanding and goodwill, end quote. Now here we are, 57 years after King's historic speech. And as we examine the landscape of current culture, we have the modern day social justice movement. At the forefront of this movement are three women, Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opal Tometi. They're leading the charge for the organization Black Lives Matter. And this new approach to social justice began with a jury verdict in the case of Trayvon Martin. By way of memory, on July 13, 2013, after hearing all the evidence in the Trayvon Martin case, the six-woman jury, which included one minority, would find George Zimmerman not guilty. Now, this verdict delivered despite being given at the last minute the option of three choices. The jury had the option of three choices. Number one, they could find Zimmerman guilty of second-degree murder. Number two, they could find him guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Or three, they could find him not guilty. They, of course, chose not guilty. The case had then therefore been adjudicated. The matter had been closed. But that was insufficient for those who are part of Black Lives Matter. This, this movement, this modern-day movement, began at that point. But next in line to follow was the decision of the Michael Brown case. Prior to the investigation of the Michael Brown case, the hands up, don't shoot narrative had swept the country. Now, again, this is a narrative that sweeps the country prior to any investigation having taken place. This hands up, don't shoot narrative was, was parroted by entertainers and athletes, all promoting the narrative. Brown's case, however, would be investigated by the Obama administration's Department of Justice head, Eric Holder. In the case of Michael Brown, Obama's DOJ, and, and again, this is a reminder, Obama's DOJ could not find sufficient evidence to charge the officers of wrongdoing in the Brown shooting. Now, now I want to be clear about the situation here. Th those who are part of Black Lives Matter argue that the, that the halls of justice are, are whitewashed. They're to the advantage of those whites and not blacks. But here's what we have. Let's be clear about this. We had a black president, a black attorney general, a black district attorney, and they could not find the hands up, don't shoot narrative to be accurate, nor was there enough evidence to, to the prosecution to prosecute the officer involved in the death of Michael Brown? After seven months of investigating, Attorney General Eric Holder said the following in a statement regarding the issue, quote, this morning, the Justice Department announced the conclusion of our investigation and released an 87-page report documenting our findings and conclusions that the facts do not support the filing of criminal charges against Officer Darren Wilson in the case. Michael Brown's death, though a tragedy, did not involve prosecutable conduct on the part of Officer Wilson, end quote. 
And I want to take our time to unpack this because I want you to see what it was that was the, the preconditions, those, those things that were necessary for the Black Lives Matter movement to get started. One, a case by which they disagreed, and two, a case investigated by a black president, by a black attorney general, and by a black uh, d- a district attorney. And the issue was found that, that, there, that the story didn't hold weight. Now, the Michael Brown case notwithstanding, the high point of the Black Lives Matter movement has been the case of George Floyd. As all the information regarding the case is still being investigated, the details are slowly becoming clear. Now, it's at this point that I want to give you a thought process. The high point of the civil rights movement is the the I have a dream speech. Contrast that with the high point of the BLM movement, which is the case of George Floyd. In the meantime, the protest seeking justice for George Floyd have spread to over 2,000 cities and towns in 50 states, including more than 60 countries. While many protests have been peaceful, according to the media, it's staggering to consider the number of innocent victims who have been killed, the inestimable cost of the damage to those cities, and the businesses forever lost in black communities and elsewhere. This is the high point of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, as we examine the modern social justice movement against the backdrop of the civil rights movement, I, I mentioned earlier uh, when, we had our Q, when we had our Q&A that I would try to make some contrast. There are three points that I want to make with regard to the narrative of both movements. The civil rights movement of the 60s had a narrative. They appealed to three things. Number one, the Judeo-Christian founding of the United States of America. Number two, equality rather than equity. And number three, the image of God in all of us. However, unlike King's movement, the BLM movement has abandoned these ideas in favor of their own narrative, which includes the following. Number one, American culture at its founding was based in the sin of slavery. Number two, all inequity is the, resu- is the result of systemic racism. And number three, black lives matter. Forget everyone else. Now, for those who might be thinking I'm overstating the case, allow me to quote from the Black Lives Matter website where they state the following, and I quote, Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer. Black Lives Matter Foundation, Inc., whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and to build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. By combating and counteracting acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives, end quote. Now, I want you to, I want to again contrast this against the backdrop of of King's I Have a Dream speech. When when we look at the Black Lives Matter movement and and, and their movement forward and their philosophy, their ideology, there are no calls for unity. There are no calls for upholding historic Judeo-Christian values. There are no calls for freedom. There are no calls for joy, the joy that comes from living in a just society for all people. So the question that we should be asking is how did we get here? How did we go from the unifying discovery of Dr. King's movement to the unashamed destruction associated with the current cultural milieu? Furthermore, And this is the most important aspect. How is it possible that this destructive ideology has worked its way so quickly 
into seminaries, into pastoral pulpits, into what we've come to know as conservative evangelicalism. Now, my assignment is to give you a historic background of the theologies and the ideologies that have influenced our current climate. But allow me, if you will, to present two groups who have had profound impact on one another regarding their view of God, their view of man, their view of sin, and sin's solution. The first group we'll start with is, is, is a group that began in, the, in 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee, known as the birthplace, it was known as the birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan. Klan protests began to escalate during Reconstruction of the South after the Civil War. After a brief hiatus due in part to mild government suppression and only regional appeal, the Klan witnessed a resurrection of sorts after 1915 with the debut of the movie Birth of a Nation. As, as massive immigration, economic subjugation, and organized labor began disproportionately impacting Southern whites in the 1920s, after the Great Depression, the Klan would then rise again in the, in the 1960s. So what you had is, is the Klan's rise in the, in the early 20s, followed by a brief kind of hiatus, only to have them show themselves up again in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. They began their violence by targeting, targeting blacks and white sympathizers. While many are familiar with the activities associated with the Klan, Few knew how much the theology, knew much rather about the theology that informed their activities. Like most movements who have an ideological position, interestingly enough, many of them have a theological position from which to draw their ideologies from. Let me give you the example of, of another individual, born August 5th, 1938 in Fordyce, Arkansas. James Cone grew up in the segregated South and attended the Macedonian African Methodist Episcopal Church. Cone obtained his Bachelor's of Divinity in 1961 from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary and a Master's of Arts and Doctorate of Philosophy degrees from Northwest University in 1963 and in 65, respectively. Dr. Cone was a theologian and an author, and at the time of his death, he was the Bill and Judas Moyers Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Systematic Theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Now, many consider James Cone to be the father of black liberation theology. Again, few knew until recently of Cone's theological ideologies. Fewer still had any idea of their impact or their modern day impact on the seminaries of our day. Now, having presented these two groups, if you will, if you'll allow me to call them two groups, I, I want to examine their ideologies by playing a little guessing game. Now, the challenge that I've chosen, uh, the challenge that I've chosen is a game that I'm going to call Who Said It First? And I I'm, I'm, I'm eliciting, I'm soliciting each of you to play and to participate in this game with me. Who Said It First? Your choices are James Cone or the Ku Klux Klan. In order to make the game challenging and interesting, I thought to remove the words white and black to keep things interesting. Now, the first quote is a quote about religion's purpose. It's a quote about religion's purpose. And so here's the quote, quote, to protect the weak, the innocent, and the defenseless, and the defenseless from the indignities, wrongs, and outrages of the lawless, the violent, and the brutal. To relieve the injured, the oppressed and the suffering, and the unfortunate, especially 
the widows. End quote. So the game again is who said it first? Was it James Cone or the Klan? Now, if you guessed the Klan, you'd be correct. In his book, White Robes and Burning Crosses, A History of the Ku Klux Klan from 1886, Michael Newton writes this, quote, The catch of this statement lay in its definition. As seen by Klansmen, the injured and the oppressed, they were Southern whites. They were suffering in a world where blacks were citizens. The lawless, the violent, the brutal, well, those were northern soldiers and anyone who supported congressional reconstruction. All others were, by definition, illegitimate, end quote. In his book, The Character and Object of the Order of the KKK, 1866, Stanley Horton writes this, quote, Having suffered a crushing defeat during the Civil War, where some estimates say 260,000 Southerners died, after being ordered to free some three million black slaves formerly seen as property, after having suffered from the restructure of Reconstruction and later radical Reconstruction laws that greatly impacted the daily lives of Southerners, and again, after having witnessed former slaves now take positions of power in political office, rightly or wrongly, many Southern whites now believed themselves to be the oppressed. My goal in using these quotes is not to equate the suffering as stated by the Klan as equivalent to those who suffered as slaves or even newly freed slaves, nor am I ignoring the, the ruth, ruthless actions of the Klan. My point in examining these and other quotes is to reveal that any time we use the subjective standard of, of offense, of suffering, or oppression, to determine the value, dignity, and worth of a human being, we have replaced God's standard of humanity as the imago Dei, as the crown jewel of His creation, for what then becomes a self-serving standard, which is often used to justify sinful actions. Okay, that was the first quote. On to the second one. Blank people, and again, remember, I've removed the word white and black. Blank people are a manifestation of God's presence on the earth. Who said it first? Was it Cone or the Klan? Well, in this case, James Cone in his book, Black Theology and Black Power, said this, quote, For white people, God's reconciliation in Jesus Christ means that God has made black people a beautiful people. If they, meaning white people, are going to be in relationship with God, they must enter by means of their black brothers who are a manifestation of God's presence on earth. The assumption that one can know God without knowing blackness is the basic heresy of white churches. Let me repeat that. The assumption that one can know God without knowing blackness is the basic heresy of white churches. They want God without blackness, Christ without obedience, and love without death. Continuing to quote from Cohn, what they fail to realize is that in America... God's revelation on earth has always been black, red, or some other shocking shade, but never white, end quote. Now, this quote expresses the unbiblical nature of Conian anthropology, which is often articulated by Cone's contemporary followers. It's important to listen to these quotes in Cone's own words, because what you're hearing parroted right now in our culture, in our seminaries, and even in pulpits are the same things that Cone advocated and stated and printed in form. Let me continue on. 
Add to this Cohn's false soteriological understanding, which is more akin to the black power movement or the nation of Islam than anything grounded in scripture. And what you find is not only problematic, it's downright blasphemous. It's ethnic divinity. It's equivalent to Christ crucified. Ethnic divinity becomes equivalent to Christ and him crucified. Dr. Anthony Bradley's book, Liberating Black Theology, examines the core of Conian theology as he states the following, quote, what we find in Conian and post-Conian black liberation theology, however, is that the goal of theology is to study the being of God in the world in light of the existential situation. Let me say that again. It is to study the being of God in the world in light of the existential situation of an oppressed community, relating the forces of liberation to the essence of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. Again, relating the forces of liberation to the essence of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. And this is an important quote, again, and continuing to quote from, from Bradley's book. He says, the end of this process is not the glory of God, but the dignity of the black experience in America. This is a significant divergence from Orthodox Christian theology. That's odd. That should be obvious to all, end quote. Now, Dr. Bradley's analysis and critique of black liberation theology is spot on. However, his conclusions miss the mark as he appeals to the idea of reforming, redeeming, and liberating this myopically experiential hermeneutic. What's needed is unfiltered biblical exposition. Now the last quote of the challenge of who said it first, was it Cone or the Klan? Here's the quote, quote, all of Christian civilization depends upon the preservation and upbuilding of the blank race. All of Christian civilization depends upon the preservation and upbuilding of the blank race, end quote. Now with that quote, if you guessed the Klan, you'd be correct. From the Klan's Encyclopedia of Southern Culture, it says this, quote, this is a white man's organization. And again, I wish you would hear this through the lens of going to a Black Lives Matter website and hearing the same language with the, with the, with the names, with the words white and black, absolutely reversed. They, they say this. We, we see this, this statement as, as incredibly racist, yet for some odd reason we have these rose-colored glasses as we look at and examine the Black Lives Matter website. We should see it no differently. They, they say this. Quote, this is a white man's organization exalting the Caucasian race and teaching the doctrine of white supremacy. All of Christian civilization depends upon the preservation and upbuilding of the white race. End quote. The point to be made from using the quotes both from Cone and the Klan side by side is to expose the fact that there's very little difference in the ideological experiential hermeneutic used by Cone and that of the Klan. And I realize that for some, this may be an incendiary statement. However, it's not difficult to prove as both groups, Southern whites and blacks who had suffered segregation, viewed their circumstance in terms of oppression and subjugation, the oppressed and the oppressor. Both turned to the use of scripture to anchor their sociopolitical, theological, and ideological ideas. Each group turned to the scripture for different reasons. Both, however, were engaged in an experiential hermeneutic that informed their understanding and the exposition of the text of scripture. Allow me for a moment to address what critics who might be viewing this may say as a result of what I just shared. Most critics would challenge my juxtaposition of Cone and the Klan. Many would argue that the violent outcomes perpetrated by the Klan are in no way equivalent 
to the impact of Cohn's ideas. With that point, I might be tempted to agree. However, we live in a different time than, than why I originally put this together. And I'd almost argue that they're, they're, they're completely on par with one another. However, I think we have to be willing to admit, at least, at least, that the foundation of both Cone and the Klan find their origin in a heart rooted in sinful hatred against one another. Furthermore, it's important to admit this truth without regard to outcome or seemingly justifiable causality found in either group. Each group will have the tendency to want to justify their position. Well, the reason why I acted out like this was because of these outside forces that had impact on me. Both groups will say the same thing, but we have to look at the fact that the issue at hand is the hatred in the human heart, and that's at, that's at the root of the issue. Sadly, unorthodox anti-biblical ideas are now being articulated and embraced by post-Conian theologians. Not only them, but evangelical pastors are embracing the ideas as well, as well as entire denominations, not the least of which being the SBC. If you're ever curious about the impact of black liberation theology, a quick Google search for the words repent of whiteness. If you Google search that, what you'll find are more than 250,000 articles with calls for white evangelicals to repent of whiteness and to embrace blackness as a means of salvation. So the question there is what, 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 is, meant by to, what is meant when someone asks you to repent of whiteness? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you asked. Dr. Roger E. Olson, he's a professor of Christian theology and ethics at Baylor University. Olson describes himself as someone who's a strong supporter of liberation theologies. He explains in the article, the article is called, Ought I to Repent of Being a White Male? In that article, he recognizes that calls, calls to repent of his whiteness actually mean three things. Let me lay them out for you. Number one, that he should repent of simply having white male privilege in a racist and sexist society, regardless of what he does with that privilege. Simply having it is something to repent of. Number two, he should repent of enjoying white male privilege. He goes on in the article to explain how this differs from simply having it. And while the difference is subtle, it is still distinct. Number three, he should repent of not using his privileged status for the equality and empowerment of oppressed peoples. Olson goes on in the piece to quote from James Cone. Isn't this interesting? Modern day, going back and quoting from James Cone. And here's what he says, quote, James Cone called for white people to become black. And he didn't mean change their skin color. Perhaps this takes the call to repent a step further from, from the second meaning beyond just solidarity with to active participation in liberation, end quote. Now, let me be clear. The most important thing that any human being needs to be liberated from is the payment due from them for their sins against a holy God. We need to spend our lives liberating others from this penalty through the proclamation of the gospel. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation with God that comes through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Now, as we, as we examine first wave black liberation theology here in America, the pioneering of James Cone is undeniable. However, Cone is not without his influences from the international stage. 
Liberation theologians and contemporaries of Cone come from Roman Catholicism or Roman Catholic Latin America. They abound. In fact, in his writings, Cone unashamedly quotes from Catholic sources, men like Gustavo Gutierrez, Jose Comblin, and Leonardo Boff. These men, contemporaries of Cone, were practicing their own versions of soft Marxian liberation theology. And by soft Marxian liberation theology, I mean that these men held mostly to all that Marx offered in the oppressed versus oppressor classes that he used for separating groups of people. However, none of these men, Gutierrez, Comblin, or Boff, embraced the more atheistic forms of Marxian thought. This form of liberation theology actually gained strength in Latin America during the 60s and 70s, primarily because of their insistence on, on this fact that, quote, religious practice should include the involvement of political struggle of the poor against wealthy elites. That ought to sound incredibly familiar to, to you, because that's exactly what's being said in our current day. What we're being told is that social justice is a gospel issue. What was said in that time was exactly the same kind of thing. While today, Roman Catholicism would embrace many of the ideas surrounding social justice, by the mid-90s, the Vatican under Pope John Paul II had begun to stop the growing influence of, of, uh, of liberation theology in Latin America by appointing more conservatives in Brazil and elsewhere in Latin America. North American influence in the development of Cone's ideological positions would include the black power movement and black nationalist movements of the late 60s and 70s. These American movements were born out of the vacuum of leadership during the civil rights era and the assassination of Malcolm X in 1965 and Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968. Before one can properly examine the theology found in black liberation theology, it's important to understand that Cone's theology first begins with an experiential hermeneutic as seen through the lens of a historically black experience unique here in North America. For example, his lens can be found in the statement of, found in the statement in the late 60s by the National Committee of Black Churchmen. Partly in response, in fact, that, that committee, that, that organization is actually responsible for exposing us to black theology. The Committee of Black Churchmen would comprise approximately 300 men from a variety of ecumenical and ecclesiastical backgrounds. The statement in part would read this way, quote, for us, Black theology is a theology of liberation. It seeks to plumb the black condition in light of God's revelation in Jesus Christ so that the black community can see the gospel as commensurate with the achievement of black humanity. Black theology is a theology of blackness. It is the affirmation of, the black, of black humanity that emancipates black people from white racism thus providing authentic freedom for both white and black people. It affirms the humanity of people in that it says no to the encroachment of white oppression, end quote. Now, the statement from, the, from these black churchmen weren't enough. James Cone would make the connection between black power and black theology clear in his writings. Quoting from an article entitled Christianity and Black Power, Cone's, Cone writes this, quote, my concern, as, as he's examining the landscape of culture, where he is, he, he wants to make clear the point that he's making and distinguish it from everything else that's out there. He says this, quote, my concern was to demonstrate that the politics of, of black power, 
was the gospel of Jesus to the 20th century America. For black power was concerned with the liberation of the black poor from oppression. And Jesus had shown such concern for the liberation of the poor during his earthly ministry. That, that, should, that quote alone should cause you to gasp because what he's done in that very sentence is he's, he's established that black power is the gospel of Jesus Christ in the 20th century America. Cohn would go on to write this, quote, Jesus' death on the cross represented God's boundless solidarity with victims, even unto death. Jesus' resurrection is good news that there is new life for the poor that is not determined by their poverty, but overcomes it, end quote. Now, before you begin to read your own orthodox kind of presuppositions into what Cohn meant by new life for the poor, you may be thinking the, the poor in spirit. Cohn makes this point clear in the following statement, quote, if the gospel is a gospel of liberation for the oppressed, then Jesus is where the, where, is where the oppressed are and continues his work of liberation there. Jesus is not safely confined in the first century. He is our contemporary, proclaiming release to the captives and rebelling against all who silently accept the structures of injustice. Note what he's saying there. It's not simply that, that they're advocating the overthrow of the structures. But if you're silent about the overthrow of those structures, you are indeed complicit as well. If he, being Jesus, is not in the ghetto, if he is not where human beings are living at the brink of existence, but is rather in the easy life of the suburbs, then the gospel is a lie. The opposite, however, is the case. Christianity is not alien to black power. Listen to this. Christianity is black power. Apparently, Cone paid no attention to, to Scripture. He, he, had Cone uh, not held so tightly to seeing Scripture through the lens of black liberation theology, he would have understood the story of the woman who anointed Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment in Matthew chapter 26. This might have given him pause regarding his statement in the account in Matthew 26. The disciples are indignant. They're saying, why this waste as this woman pours this alabaster of perfume on Jesus? Why this waste in verse 9? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you but you will not always have me. Now, in the text, that expresses the value of the life and death of Jesus and the importance of the gospel far above the need to eradicate poverty. It is Jesus himself who is placing this high value on his death and resurrection while all but ignoring the temporal needs of the poor. And I recognize that, that I've given you a, a litany of quotes, the volume of which can be kind of overwhelming. But, but I think it's important that we examine these theological ideas that are, that are posited by men like James Cone because they are being repeated constantly in our day. A couple of brief thoughts here before we examine some of the theological ideas surrounding the historic movement. Number one is this. In the autobiography of, of Malcolm X written by Alex Haley and in the movie of the same name by Spike Lee, the author and writer recount a story as told by a sympathetic college girl. She happens to be white. She approaches Malcolm X. After having listened to Malcolm X's fiery speeches, 
She has determined that there's something that she must do to join the cause, to fight injustice. There's a scene in the movie where she approaches Malcolm X after a college speech given by Malcolm. The girl breathlessly explains how she's been impacted by what she has heard through Malcolm's teaching. She now understands that she can no longer sit idly by and do nothing. Desiring to stand up to do more, she is at the point of tears as she asks Malcolm, what can she, a white girl, do to be a part of the cause? In the movie and in the book, she is dismissed by Malcolm X, explaining, he says this, I told her there wasn't a ghost of a chance that she could do anything, and she went away crying. Malcolm X goes on further to explain, I've lived to regret that incident. In many parts of the African continent, I saw white students helping black people. Some, some like this, something like this kills a lot of the argument. I think many things that a black Muslim, I, I think of many things that I did as a black Muslim that I am sorry for now. Well, as, as I thought about that incident, I went back to review the, the life of James Cone. I wanted, to, I wanted to see if there was any epiphany that happened in his life where he had been helped along the way by other whites, where he, his eyes began to open and began to see the nature of things uh, with regard to reality. And it would seem that Cone never experienced that epiphany. He, he, he never had that, 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 that eye-opening experience as he promoted black liberation theology. He could never see that his, his ability even to promote this cause was due in no small part to a large number of white people who had aligned themselves to help him. Now, this truth is undeniable. One must acknowledge that, that it is the benevolence of many whites that allowed Dr. James Cone numerous platforms, stages, and teaching opportunities, and even book deals as they promoted his theology. This is a caveat. This is a, this is a side note to, to the white liberal who believes that they are somehow being benevolent in the advance of this unbiblical, ungodly cause. Robert Ellsberg of Orsberg Books, he, he was, he was uh, the co-founder with, with Cone. He was the editor who assisted him in the reprinting of several of his books. He, he said of Cone after Cone's death, quote, I worked with James for over 30 years. For at least 20 of those years, I'm not sure he really trusted me, end quote. Much of what men like Cohn do, the ideas they promote, the speeches that they give, the impacts that they have on large audience in America and the world over are due in no small way to the benevolent kindness of whites who have little to gain other than the belief that they are somehow joining a cause. Sadly, for Cone, this has no lasting impact insofar as a deeper reflecting of his own ideological positions regarding black experience. He, he never allowed his own lived out experience to, to be a, a catalyst for changing his mindset about what he engaged in. So as, as we talked about in the Q&A, those white liberals who believe themselves to be benevolent, to be helpful in some way, you're, you're fooling yourselves. You're absolutely fooling yourselves. And while the issue of social justice is, is not my topic, I'd have to say I'd be, re I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge as much that, that the witnessing, that we, we, what we are witnessing in the actions of social justicians is the result of being ridden with some form of white guilt. I, I think this is incredible. It's the, it's the overarching narrative of the culture that, that you're guilty for something perhaps you didn't commit, but that your ancestors actually committed. As, as, I, as I get ready to close, the last question that must be asked is, how can modern day contemporaries, social justicians, who hold to an orthodox view of Christianity, 
How can they hold to that while continuing to hold to black liberation theology? The answer simply is that they can't. But it becomes clear when we examine how they're able to do that, when we examine the systematic theology of the modern-day social justician. Like all systematic theology, one's view of Scripture and the belief that the gospel of Christ is paramount is at the fore. Most social justicians hold to the idea that Scriptures are insufficient to meet the needs of mankind and that the gospel is not enough. Allow me to quote, if you will, from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith as it pertains to the Scriptures. It says this, quote, The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence are so clearly, demonst- that so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. We examine, when we examine Cone's view of Scripture, we witness a practice that is consistent with heterodoxy as it relates to scriptural inerrancy. For the post-Conian theologian, his view of Scripture is always brought low. Scripture no longer serves as the primary revelation of faith and practice. Instead, it is to be only used insofar as it serves the purpose of the quote-unquote prophet or theologian desiring to mangle its truths that are found in its text. What you'll find often is that Scripture is allegorized or it's over-contextualized or it's mystically spiritualized and what's left of Scripture no longer has the potency for its intended purpose. Scripture from this view serves the individual who has a man-handled view of the text. Unfortunately, far too many have engaged in the malpractice of faith. They know exactly what they are doing. And sadly, for James Cone and those who see him as a theological hero, they do not care. Dr. Anthony Bradley again summarizes the essence of hermeneutics, the hermeneutics of Cone when he says this, quote, Cone in his writings remained critical of an orthodox evangelical theology that maintains the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture and the creator-creature distinction. And he holds scriptures, he does not hold scripture rather, as the final authority of all matters of faith. Because those positions fail to uncover, those positions that he holds fail to uncover the importance to the wretchedness of the earth. As I continue, it's important to note that Scripture doesn't give us the option to, to hold it out and to determine whether or not we, we want to abide by what it says. Scripture actually stands over us. It is what informs us. It is what, what teaches us, what, what walks us through to, so that we can understand our experience. We don't understand our experience and then look at Scripture. Scripture interprets for us our experience. It's interesting because what ends up happening with Cohn in his book, For My People, a Black Theology in the Black Church, he says this, quote, The Christian faith does not possess in its nature the means for analyzing the structures of capitalism. And then he tells you what, what, what is the means. Marxism, not the Bible. Marxism as a tool for social analysis can disclose the gap between apparent, uh, appearance and reality and thereby help Christians to see how things really are. There you finally have it. Marxism is the tool suggested by Cohn that brings his orthopraxy to orthodoxy. It's important to note, 
What's curious is that Cohn doesn't abandon Christianity altogether. He doesn't abandon it altogether. And I think he realizes that for his audience, blacks in the late 60s and 70s, it's important for him to keep a hold to the Christian faith as he marries this idea with his Marxian beliefs. True Christianity, biblical Christianity, understands that the Bible is sufficient and that Jesus is enough. Allow me, if you will, to, to, to share with you as I close the a scripture that, that amplifies the truthfulness of that fact. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and following declares, He, being Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Praise be to God. Whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he may have preeminence. For God was pleased to have the fullness dwell, his fullness dwell in him. And through him, reconcile to himself all things. That is the end of the ideas around racial reconciliation. In Him all things have indeed been reconciled. Things in heaven and on earth by making peace through the blood of His cross. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God, you were hostile in your, in your minds because of the, your evil deeds, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy and unblemished and blameless in His presence. If indeed you continue in the faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven in which I, Paul, have become a servant. You see, Jesus is enough. The gospel is enough. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough for us all. Paul declares, I'll say this in, in Acts 17, 30 and, and, and verse uh, 31, although God overlooked the ignorance of earlier times, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, true justice, by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Turn to Christ and live. The gospel is enough.